This time a little more from our conversation with behavioural geneticist Paige Harden. Harden's book, The Genetic Lottery, looks at science that seems to suggest genetic associations with personality, behaviour and even life outcomes. But its real question is what we will do with the learnings of new genetic tools such as GWAS or genome-wide association studies. And what does it all mean for redheads? One of the great sort of, uh, I suppose, poems about the effect of environment and, and genes is related to red hair, which is obviously very interesting for people in, in <laughs> Ireland. Yeah, so this is a... I, I'm glad that you call it a poem. It's, it is kind of a poetic example. So this is a thought experiment from the sociologist Sandy Jinks, who was writing in the 70s. And he said, you know, imagine a world where redheads were discriminated against and their teachers hated them and they weren't allowed to go to school, right? And... Then you did a genetic study and you saw, are there genetic effects on illiteracy? Well, you would find them, right? Because genes affect the color of your hair and the color of your hair evokes a social response and the social response structures your environmental opportunities and that leads to whether or not you can read. But that isn't what most people would think of as a quote-unquote genetic effect, right? Because it's operating through this social process. You know, I think that's a really important point for two reasons, three reasons, actually. The first is, you know, it's a great example of why we should be wary of using polygenic scores for personalized education or decisions about individuals. Because right now we don't know how much they're picking up on these type of redheaded effects, which is genes are coding for some aspect of someone's physical appearance that's, that's being responded to with bias and discrimination. The second is it, it, it undermines genetic determinism. Well, yes, genes might cause illiteracy. How would we fix that? Well, it wouldn't be by giving everyone like black hair genes. It would be by changing the, how the social environment responds to people, right? So it's an environmental intervention that addresses this genetic disparity. And the third thing, and I think this is that actually the most radical, which is, well, if we see that redheaded children are discriminated against, they're pushed out of society, and that calls out for some sort of redress for that inequality, why should some aspect of someone's psychology be any different, right? Like if a child struggles with working memory or dyslexia, is them being excluded from the economy, pushed out of the job market, living a life of economic precarity, is that any fairer than redheaded children not being allowed to go to school? I don't think it is. Um, so I think the, the, the one of the poetics aspects of Jing's example is it really highlights how morally arbitrary all of our luck in life is. So a GWAS might be picking up, this is that genome-wide association study that kind of looking for patterns in people's DNA and how they're correlated with outcomes. It might be that a certain gene is associated with going further in school because that gene codes for something related to how good is your memory, right? And then children with better memory go further in school. But we also see that it's things like genes that make it so that you go through puberty earlier. And we know that girls who go through puberty earlier are responded to differently, and they're more likely to, to struggle in school. So the algorithm is picking up on all sorts of processes, some of which we might think of as fair or, you know, things that we don't mind operating, but also some things that might be more indicative of social bias and discrimination. That's why I suggest in my book 
that we shouldn't be using genetics to classify people. We should be using them as a tool to understand the environment, which environments are working most effectively. Traditionally, if, if people want to make the point that you're making, they're often making it from, uh, or have historically been making it, and maybe even contemporarily be making it from a eugenicist point of view, through a, a, a kind of lens that sees uh, certain traits as desirable and certain traits then as uh, necessarily uh, necessary to be eradicated. And even though that's a, the sort of historical story of eugenics, it's not one that we've escaped from. I think a lot of the fear and a lot of the misinformation around genetics has really rested on this idea that if if there's genetic causes of human behavior, then the only way to intervene to help people will be to mess with their genes in some way, uh, which of course is a really abhorrent prospect. We saw that in the 20th century, the way in the US and the UK and Europe, people use the idea of genetics to justify these eugenic sterilization programs, um, uh, really messing with people's reproductive autonomy. Any one of your listeners who is wearing eyeglasses is a living example that we can treat in genetically caused differences using an environmental intervention, right? You have a genetic predisposition towards myopia, but we put on eyeglasses, which is this environmental intervention. The same sort of thing, and I talk about this example in my book, is um, speech deficits, right? Most speech deficits are heritable. We treat them not by tinkering with children's genes, but by putting them in speech therapy, by giving them access to the resources that they need. There's a kind of tricky line here where I'm saying we need to take genetics seriously as a source of individual differences, as a source of how people's lives go differently. But our response to observing those differences isn't to throw up our hands and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. We're abdicating our responsibility. It's to use that information to figure out how can we most effectively structure society and intervene environmentally so that people have the most optimum equal life chances. I think it's interesting to look back historically because we see a time in the early 20th century where there wasn't this kind of um, lockstep alliance between people who you know, believed in human inferiority and superiority and kind of an endorsement of genetics. There was a lot more kind of ideological sort of flux. And I think now, it's particularly in the U.S., we're also again in a time of ideological and political flux. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that now is when we are reimagining things and trying to think about, well, what, what forms of science have we given away too much to, um, you know, to a really pernicious right wing that we should really reclaim as part of our social justice movements? Catherine Page Harden there and the genetic lottery Why DNA Matters for Social Equality is out from Princeton University Press. And if you'd like to hear more of that conversation, subscribe now to the podcast.